Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Cut the Shit. A podcast that takes a closer look at the IT industry, both the good and the bad. My name is Cameron Plato. And I'm Brian Law. And I'm Brian Link. Greetings, and welcome to Cut the Shit, a podcast series that aims to take a closer look at the IT industry, both the good and the bad, and hopefully help all of us get better at making the business of technology work for our companies, our customers, and our economies. Cut the Shit is brought to you by Plow Networks, a managed IT services company based just outside Nashville, Tennessee. My name is Brian Link. I'm the EVP of Products and Services here at Plow, and I'll be your host for this series. I'll ask questions and, with the help of our guests, try to dig deep on some of the key challenges we all face doing IT. So with that, let's cut the shit and get started. On today's episode, we're going to tackle a thorny topic, and that's technology risk and how to manage it. I say thorny because it's just so wide-ranging. Business risk runs the gamut, really, and even if you narrow it down to technology risk, it's never been more expansive than in today's highly connected, widely distributed work environment. In true cut-the-shit fashion, we will not be talking about the latest and greatest software that promises to solve all of your IT risk and security issues. Because let's face it, that doesn't exist. Instead, we're going to zoom in on the financial institution space to see what we can learn from how banks are leveraging technology to better manage risk in general and technology risk specifically. To help us with this discussion, I am pleased to have Bill Simpson, CTO of InContracts, with me today. InContracts is a rising fintech star and a leader in providing risk and compliance management software for financial institutions. Sexy, I know, right? In Contracts is growing like crazy, and Bill's development team has been a key part of that growth story. Bill and I have a frank conversation about what risk management is and isn't. We'll get into what it means to be compliant, how networks, the internet, and people complicate the process, and whether regulation is helping or hurting the effort. Through it all, we'll talk about the relationship between software and the broader technology function to see what changes he'd like to see to make the two work better together. Bill is one of the best technologists I know in the fintech space, so I feel sure you will enjoy this conversation. Bill, thanks so much for joining me today on Cut the Shit. Oh, thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, I'm really glad to have you. Um, we've known each other a good while now. We go back a ways um, before we kind of walk down memory lane or anything like that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where, where are you today? Where, where do you sit? Are you uh, in the office somewhere remote? What's going on today? Well, I am actually sitting in my basement, uh, so it, my background's blurred. You can probably see it a little bit back there for those of you who are watching the video. Uh, this is an unfinished basement, so it gets lots of commentary from folks because they think it's some industrial place, or, and, they, and sometimes people think it's a background that I've added, but it is actually just my laziness uh, that has me sitting in my unfinished basement, <clears throat> and that's in Franklin, Tennessee, so our offices are open. We do have people going in, but honestly, I've remoted most of my team at this point. So for me to be in the office every day is really unnecessary. So that, that does kind of lead into the question. I was going to say a remote or an office. Do you go into the office at all, or does it sort is it sort of as needed? So I try to go into the office two to three days a week, um, but I'm not going in on a regular schedule. So I'll go in at 10 o'clock in the morning and leave around 3 o'clock. I'm still working the other hours as well, but it's actually it's been a great adjustment because you avoid that commute, um, but you still get to FaceTime with people that you want to be able to go see. Yeah, for our, our listeners who are not from Nashville, Tennessee, it's not Atlanta yet, but it's working on it. So the traffic from where Bill lives to his office is uh, particularly interesting about 8 to 8.30 in the morning. It can be a little bit crazy. It's not L.A., yeah. don't get me wrong, but it's also not small town USA either. Now it used to be. We complain a little bit about it uh, here, but I think that's because people don't really understand what real traffic is like. Having lived in, in Boston and Seattle and San Diego, I can tell you I understand what real traffic is like here as a picnic, honestly. Yeah, it's still a rush hour. It's not uh, all the time. My son lives right. in Washington, D.C., and about the only time there's not traffic is like 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. You know, yep. you, you, you can make it work then. That's about it. So you know and then they still got the garbage trucks out at that time, so you really you, you mess up either way. That's true. That's true. So the, you mentioned your team. Is, is, do you have a distributed team? Where, where's your, where your, well, tell us a little bit about your team and, and where are they? Sure. So um, I guess by a little bit of background. So I'm the chief technology and product officer at a company called Encontracts that builds out risk management software. So this, this topic we're, we're discussing today is pretty germane to what we do as an organization. That's and not an accident. <clears throat> That's good to hear. So, you know, we've got product and technology people, essentially, as well as some folks that build content. They're, they're distributed throughout the country. So we made a conscious decision 
about two years ago to already start embracing uh, remote folks. So while I do have a core of people that are in uh, Brentwood, Tennessee, which is about 40 of the uh, the folks that report into my organization, the other half or so uh, is distributed throughout the country. Uh, so them in <clears throat> excuse me local offices where they'll have two or three people there. So we've got a, a spot in Johnson City, Tennessee. We've got a spot in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. We've got a spot in L.A. actually. Uh, but then the rest of them are actually working from home. Uh, so we, we've uh, embraced that a while back. So, so you know, tech people, particularly developers, have a reputation for being maybe a little introverted, um, you know, maybe on the social side, being a little less on the extroversion uh, equation for sure. Has work from home or this, rem- you know, kind of pure remote model, do you feel like that's been good for them uh, in terms of their morale? Um, I do. I think we do have a series of folks that are introverted. I like to think of them as probably more introverted extroverts. Once they get to know people, they become more extroverted. And I think that's pretty universal across the scene uh, from a technology perspective. Um, so it's, it's been good to be able to onboard people remotely. But I will tell you, I do think there's some fractures there. I think people miss getting together, honestly. Uh, so we're, we're trying to do a little bit of the best of both worlds there. Even in the future, as uh, the pandemic opens back up, uh, we're going to allow people to work remotely continuously. But we're going to create office space that makes it compelling for them to want to come in, not necessarily to hang out, but, uh, you you know, a destination space that gets them coming in uh, a few times a week or maybe a few times a month. Got it. So, so for you specifically, what's your work from home setup other than being down in the dungeon? What, uh, what's your setup like? How do you, how do you arrange your, your setup? Do you go mo- dual monitor, stand up? What's, what do you, what do you, what's your flavor? Great question. So I have a stand up desk, uh, with dual monitors on it. When I moved down into the basement, um, part of the reason I wanted to move down here was because my gym is also down here. So I have exercise equipment down here, which is, is nice to be able to stand up and go do something other than just sit at the desk all day. Uh, when we went home, I actually told everybody, take your stuff. So I, I didn't want people going home and working from their kitchen counters. I wanted people to go home with real desks. So everybody that's on my team took home their their uh, standing desks and all of the equipment that they had with them. So they're all pretty similarly set up. So yeah, uh, dual monitors. Actually, I have dual computers down here, one that I can use as a writing pad so it's easier to do whiteboarding with folks, uh, things like that, and then uh, my other computer for just uh, general work. Gotcha. All right, so before we get to serious stuff, one one kind of funny question. You've been doing this remote thing for a bit, which means you've been on a lot of Zoom calls or team Teams calls or WebExes. What's the funniest thing that's happened to you on a on a Zoom call um, that you can remember? Funniest things. I mean, I've seen lots of dogs jump up on people's laps and knock over uh, coffee cups onto people. So I've I've seen seen that probably two or three times. I think that's a good one. I have not seen anybody stand up without pants on yet. Uh, that's good. That's a good thing. Thankfully, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure that happens as much as as we'd like to think it does. It's a bit of an urban um, legend, I believe. I do too. I I do think there are people who forget they're on video, so you'll see people you know picking their nose and and other things <laughs> like that occasionally, which is kind of funny. Um, yeah. So if I do that on this, please let me know so we can edit that out before we. We drop this on YouTube. I'd appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah, but nothing, nothing crazy. Honestly, it's a. I guess it's a blessing uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, the funniest thing that ever happened to me. Uh, we were on an all hands WebEx, so there was probably about two hundred people on this, and it was like a big presentation. You know, somebody talking, everybody listening, and no one. Um, you didn't get to choose to put be put on. You got put on mute. You didn't put yourself on mute. But they opened it up to a Q and A session, and they told everybody. We're going to unmute everyone. Please mute yourself unless you have a question. Uh, <laughs> so no. as soon as they unmuted everybody, of course, there was a lot of noise because people had not done sure. it because they were half paying attention. But <laughs> one person in particular uh, was having an issue with their child, and they <laughs> they were literally wearing this kid out verbally um, when they unmuted the mic. <coughs> I mean, F-bombs, everything. It was no one really knew who it was, and of course, no one claimed credit for it. And it was muffled enough you couldn't really tell who the voice was. So there was a lot of fun, sort of speculating who it was. But that was that was probably the funniest thing. And watching the speaker, because we could see the speaker's face, try see to the reaction. Act, try to act like she didn't hear it, you know, which was was pretty. It was pretty funny. So I, I don't have an audio version of that, but I do have a visual version of that because when people they mute their microphones to scream at their children, thinking that they've also <laughs> muted their video, and their so video. You can see that you can see the rage in their face. <laughs> Right, but yeah, you know, you, exactly. get to, you get to add your own words to it. That's right. All right, well, enough of that. I Man, I could shoot the shit with you all day, that's for sure, but we probably better get to it. Um, you've given us a little bit of background on, on in contracts kind of at a high level, but give us a quick thumbnail sketch of sort of your background and kind of how, you know, career-wise, don't, don't, you, know, you don't have to hit everything, but kind of give us, hit the high points for us from, from uh, BU forward. 
So Yeah, sure. So I've actually been telling this story a lot lately. So just real quick on the pandemic side of things, we've expanded a lot during the pandemic. So we've done through both organic and acquisition, we've added about 40 people during the pandemic. So that's 40 people I've never actually physically met, uh, which is nuts for me in an organization that really does pride itself on uh, relationships being the thing that moves uh, moves the organization forward. So I've, I've embarked on a mission to get to meet every single one of these people. And I've been telling my origin story uh, to now about 30 of the 40 people. Uh, so it's, it's very repetitive. So maybe I can pull a little bit from that one. Go for it. So yeah, man. So so BU forward. So first, I think you got to start at BU. So I started uh, at BU way back in the day studying biomedical That's Boston University for those of you who don't know. <laughs> yeah, so. not Baylor, um, although that's a fantastic university as well. Um, but yeah, so Boston University started back there in the early 90s studying biomedical engineering. Uh, and ended up switching to computer science uh, because I took. Did a you think you wanted to be job. a doctor? Was that your? Was that what you were thinking? Um, I was pre med actually, but I don't think I wanted to be a doctor. I think I wanted to go and do things like build prosthetic limbs and okay. other things okay. that would kind of interface between computers and and human beings. Gotcha. Um, but ended up switching to computer science. It was a natural thing for me uh, at that time, and you know, really right at the beginnings of the of the dot-com boom. So this was 1995 when all that happened and uh, you know started doing a lot of different development things. And I think the most interesting thing that I got to do was uh, when I was living in San Diego, I worked for a company called Cerebra. And Cerebra built a semantic inferencing engine. And so when you guys think about AI and you think about trying to understand things, what Cerebra was building was the, the capability of truly understanding um, language and things that are on the web so that it not not only could you classify things but you could really interpret what those things are which is important when you're um, when you're trying to do things uh, in the artificial intelligence world so that was a great great job for me um, and just kind of progressed from there in 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 different software development things and ultimately into management and product development uh, when we ended up in Nashville I was working for a company called Jack Henry and Associates. So Jack Henry builds uh, banking core systems and a bunch of other things. Uh, and you know, it's one of those serendipitous, like I love the company. I think Jack Henry is a fantastic company, but I'd always had this entrepreneurial bend to me. And I was sitting there saying to myself, well, uh, you've got a four-year-old child and you're going to have to start saving for college for that kid. Uh, we were older when we had our first kid, so we probably weren't going to have too many more. And in fact, we only have the one. Uh, but we, you know, I started thinking about, okay, you got to start saving for calls and all that. So you're either going to leave Jack Henry now, or you're going to die at Jack Henry. That was kind of the, the thought process. So I left and went to go work for this tiny little five person, uh, startup company that did check 21 clearing, um, for mobile banking, essentially. That's actually where Brian and I, you and I met, right? That's right. I was at, at clear payments and that company got bought pretty quickly thereafter, uh, by a company called Ingo. And Ingo built um, check deposit and check guarantee services for traditional check cashers. And then we started building a product that allowed you to do that in the, um, in the mobile space. So actually the ability to, which we've all done remote deposit, but to do a remote deposit capture on a mobile device, guarantee the check is good, and then turn the, that check into instantaneous funds available in somebody's uh, prepaid card or their bank account. Super, super interesting work. Lots of risk involved in that particular thing. Certainly germane to fraud. Um, and then after that, uh, I really enjoyed that work, but uh, I felt like there was more that I could do. It was a remote company, so it was a little bit difficult um, and wanted to kind of join an executive team in Nashville. And that's how I ended up at Encontracts, uh, uh, joining Michael Berman's team there, which is, has been a fantastic ride. We've, we've gone from when I started, about four people in the product and technology organization with some outsourcing, and we uh, will eclipse 80 people by the end of this year uh, in the organization. Just in total, in the product and technology total head count for the company. Were you about 300 now? <clears throat> yeah, we're. I think we're we're right at that mark, somewhere around 280. Uh, I think we're going to be a little bit over 300 by the end of this year. So it's a great, great story. Company's grown uh, a lot. And what's the year-over-year growth rates been? I know I, I'm not going to ask about revenue, but in terms sure. of growth rates, what's uh, what's what's that been looking like for you guys? Um, I think we were in the 60 to 70% last year, somewhere in the same range the year before. So uh, as, a, as a financial services company growing very, very rapidly, we've been on the Inc. 5000 now for the last three years uh, from a growth perspective, which is hard to do uh, as you continue to grow. So yeah, it's a, it's a great story from that perspective. So, so real quick, give us a summary. I know it's, you know, I could say compliance as a service or risk management as a service or some buzzword like that, but give us a quick summary of what InContracts does for financial institutions, because it's mostly financial institutions at this it point, as I understand it. 
It is. So we are a general risk and compliance platform. So financial services have to manage all the risks and compliance, both from a regulatory perspective as well as a, hey, this is the right thing to do from a fiduciary perspective. And so we provide software and services in that particular space. We started out, our bread and butter was really in vendor management. So when you think about uh, high-profile risks that can occur in an organization, think about um, <clears throat> you've got a particular vendor like SolarWinds and they get breached. Uh, you know, what's the impact to your organization? Uh, what kind of diligence did you need to do against those folks in order to ensure that those, uh, those downstream effects don't impact you? So we have a lot of software and services built around that. And then we just have um, basic risk management stuff that can be layered on top of it. So your business continuity planning, your operational risk management, uh, your cybersecurity understanding of risks. And then we, a couple of years ago, started getting into lending compliance as well. So uh, mortgage lenders and non-depository institutions have to do a lot of different things to make sure that they comply with uh, Fair Lending and Community Reinvestment Act and um, the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. So we provide software and services around that as well. Gotcha. All right. Well, that I think that's probably a good lead-in. You know, the the subject matter for this podcast, right, was risk management in a risky world, or at least that's the the, the title I, I ginned up. I uh, spent a lot of time on that one, um, but it was mostly around. You know, I wanted to think about this idea of risk, and you know, the idea of business risk is broad, right? It covers all kinds of things, but wanted to talk maybe specifically, or at least get to the specifics around sort of technology risk and where it sort of fits into that picture. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, when you think about in contracts, if you were to if you had to give a, you know, sort of an elevator pitch or, you know, in terms of around what problem are you solving or what's the job to be done that in contracts does for its clients, what would, how would you describe that? Well, the job to be done is <clears throat> help me understand the risks that I have in, as an organization, whether it's a technology risk, whether it's a financial risk, whether it's a, um, you know, there's a lot of different types of risks that actually go into financial services, but maybe we can just focus on those too. So help me understand the risks that I've got uh, that are occurring within my organization. And then let me figure out what I need to actually do to control those risks. So you're never going to get rid of all the risks that occur, right? So sure. the first first step is let me assess what risks actually exist. Uh, so that requires you to do some deep thinking around your organization and where you're spending your time and the types of things that are touching your organization. And then you also need to understand what's my appetite for those risks, right? So some places are uh, more risk averse than others. Uh, and then you need to understand, okay, given my risk appetite and the risks that actually exist, um, what controls do I need to put into place in order to mitigate that risk? Because no matter what, you're going to have some acceptable amount of risk, and you need to be able to manage to that. So what contracts is really doing is providing the framework for you to go and understand the risks that are existing in your organization, helping you identify what your appetite is for those particular risks, helping you identify the controls that you might want to put in place in order to mitigate those risks, and then ultimately guiding you through the process of assessing those risks on a continuous basis so that you can ensure that any threats that might exist as a result of those risks are, are actually being mitigated through the controls that you have in place. So it's, it's one thing to have controls. Um, you need to know if those controls are actually active, and the second one is, are they effective? Uh, and so we're helping our customers do that type of work. And in financial services in particular, there are there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of banks, credit unions, mortgage, mortgage companies, and now as fintechs start to enter into this regulated space, <clears throat> there are not tens of thousands of compliance officers out there that are truly trained in order to do these things. And there's the vast difference between a $200 million bank or credit union and a $200 billion uh, bank or credit union as far as their expertise as well as the complexity of their environments. So end contracts also brings with it a lot of content that doesn't really exist anywhere else in the world to help our customers understand the types of things that they should be considering uh, as they look at their regulated risks and other risks in the organization. So you see yourself really as a risk and compliance partner with with those institutions and providing yeah. them a platform for assessing and managing that, right? So I, I'm envisioning a bunch of checklists and a bunch of, of smart ways to, to, to ask good questions, but then also prompts and content to help you maybe think about some of those some of those areas as well. So talk to me a little bit specifically what what are the kinds of technology risk that you got that you see sort of dealing with inside your platform? Yeah, so well, maybe you can expand on that question a little bit. So when you talk about dealing with inside our platform, you mean the types of risks that we're helping our customers mitigate? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so like risk can be you can have financial risk, right? Your balance sheet, you can have too many loans and too many sure. deposits, right? That's a or, or you know asset liability balance or something like that. Um, you can have um, 
you know, what I'd call maybe straight regulatory risk in the sense of there are filings and information you have to provide to the government or to the regulatory agency. And if you don't do that, that's a problem, right? Neither of those is really a, a technology risk. I mean, they sure. could be aided and abetted, but they're not. But a technology risk could be as simple as, you know, protecting the information you have from uh, people getting it from the outside, right? Or, um, you know, systemic risk around uh, your, your mobile banking or interfaces you have that, that are exposed to the internet. Um, inside, you know, it, I, I guess, you know, technology abated inside uh, issues around tracking of, of funds as they relate to your core systems or things like that. I don't, I'm just wondering how do those pieces, where do those pieces fit in sort of the broader picture? Yeah, that that makes so, it totally helps. So first of all, I mean, I think we all as technology people understand it's if not when, right? So it's, <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's not if not when, sorry, it's when not if, right? So Correct. I think as technology people, we all understand that it's, it's when not if. So you are going to get breached at some point. Uh, it's just a, it's a matter of fact, you know, my son and I were talking the other day, uh, he's talking about, Hey, we should put smart locks on the house. Uh, because it'd be great to be able to get in and out easily, and I, you know, then he starts talking about, well, but they could get hacked, and somebody could break in uh, to the house. So maybe that's not a great idea, Dad. And I, I looked at him. I said, "Son, what we really should do is just take all the locks off the house." And he's like, "Why?" I'm like, "Well, because the doors are made of glass. So what good does it do to have?" Uh, if they really want to get in, they're going to get in, right? That, that's ex- that's exactly right. I'm like, and so what we're really trying to do is we're trying to put layered defenses around our house, son, to, to help us uh, keep the bad guys out, not necessarily the locks, but sometimes the cameras are actually going to be the things that keep people out. That's why there's a big blinking light on the camera, because I want it to be visual for people. want to make sure they they know know they're being recorded. So I think you've got to take that context into into account when you're thinking about uh, financial service or really any company that's got technology. You're going to get breached. And so you're trying to figure out, well, how do I mitigate against the risks of the data exfiltration once I do get breached, right? So what what I think are some of the biggest challenges that organizations have is understanding the data governance that they've got and where that data is actually going. So one of the things that we concentrate on is uh, third and fourth party vendor management. So a financial services company, a bank in particular, um, is not building all its own technology, uh, right? They are clearly outsourcing things to other companies. I know this because I was a provider of software to other companies to do that for banks. That's what Jack um, Henry does. <laughs> that, that's right, and and has been doing for a long time and spends a lot of time on uh, ensuring that those systems are as secure as reasonably possible. So we know people are, gonna, are going to get into your systems, and we know your data is potentially going to get exfiltrated. So one of the things you really need to understand is what data exists where. So if I've got third and fourth party vendor relationships and I've got concentration in, say, um, Azure or an AWS because of those third and fourth party vendor relationships, if Azure gets hacked, how do I know whether or not my data, what data is sitting there and in what regions and in what databases? And so gathering and collecting that type of information so that you can very rapidly respond to it, uh, I think is one of the most critical things that people can do from a from a threat in the technology space perspective. Because once you do understand that you've been breached, time is of the essence. Because if I can tell all my end customers, hey, uh, we got hacked seven seconds ago and your social security number was just released with your credit card number, um, maybe you could actually go cancel your credit card before somebody actually starts pulling it, pulling money out of it. Or even worse, maybe you linked up your, uh, your debit card instead of your credit card, and now you don't have the same protections that you might have on a credit card. So having that kind of information, I think, is important. And I'm not one to, um, to give kudos to T-Mobile, but I will tell you, I was impressed recently when T-Mobile got breached that they did tell me, number one, that they got breached just that week, and number two, they were very fast in letting me know that my data was not part of it. Because that's, as a consumer, that's the first thing. I'm starting to worry about. So understanding where where your data lives, I think, is a key component uh, to to technology risks and to the types of things that we're trying to do uh, within our organization. So you know, it, it kind of leads to a little bit of a philosophical question in my mind, but but one that I want to I want to put out there for you, and that's you know, on balance, do you feel like technology has made risk management easier or harder? I think technology has made risk management easier from the perspective of understanding. Um, the risks that you know about. I think technology has made risk management much harder because the number of threats uh, is way, way higher. So, you know, a hundred years ago, your money was in a vault and uh, nobody was getting into that vault unless they got past the seven guards. And so that was, that was a difficult thing to do. Although there are a lot more bank robberies uh, than people hear about. Um, and, and I know you know a, a little bit about that, that space yes, for I, sure. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Right, but the, but the risks were, they were knowable. 
I mean, you could you could know that you had two feet of concrete on each side of your vault, and that it would it would require eight sticks of dynamite to get in. The risks right now are just so unknowable uh, as a result of technology, and the tools necessary to hack into these systems are uh, freely available to anybody. And so, if somebody gets a grudge with you or just decides to start paying attention to you, um, you've got a lot more risk. So, I guess on balance, I think it's made it a lot harder. I got it. And then, so you know, obviously, you guys are a software play around this particular issue. What else are you seeing? financial institutions do in terms of trying to leverage software to, to manage technology risk in particular? So I think a big piece of it is they're trying to leverage software and services to eliminate the need to have specialists inside their own organization do it. You know, bankers are good at banking, right? Uh, they're not necessarily good at building layered defense systems from a technology perspective. That's a necessary evil for the model that they really have, which is figuring out how to manage a really effective balance sheet and portfolio and lend, day, lend money out to people. Um, and so I think they're, they're leveraging as much technology as they can, both from a software and a service perspective, to minimize the number of people that they have to have in, involved in-house to do it. The other thing they're doing is leveraging technology to understand their compliance burdens because the compliance regulations continue to change. Uh, and if you try to keep up with that on your own, it's very difficult. So having software in place that can help you understand what risks you have internally as they relate to the compliance obligations you have, I think is, is a big one for, for these banks. Then I guess we'll, the last we'll, one is just yeah, automation. Go, go ahead. Yeah, I was go just going to say it's just automated uh, stuff around fraud. So trying to understand by looking at big data uh, what potential fraud vectors might be occurring within your organization to look for, do things like anomaly detection and exception detection and try to let the machine figure some of that stuff out for you, which, which has a lot of its own challenges around uh, governance and understandability, but um, it's still something that they're, they're actively looking into. And I assume that's part and parcel with the first one around uh, really an outsourcing play, right? Because that's a level of expertise that would be difficult for a $500 million, billion dollar community bank to, to have in-house. For, for sure. And actually, I think it's a, it's a challenge that they've got from a competitive differentiation perspective because um, – so the FFIEC put out a, a commentary letter the other, the other day. We actually participated in it where they were asking questions about the use of AI as it relates to regulated industries like banking and what, what some of the implications are. And one of the major implications that we pointed out, among others, is that large companies like Apple or Google or somebody else who really understands this stuff could co completely come in and disintermediate banks if they're given the regulatory charter to do so, and in a way that the government wouldn't be able to understand. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting risk. So how does a $500 million, which a $500 million financial institution is basically 100 people, right? Yeah. So how does that institution compete with uh, an Apple or a Google as it relates to trying to offer credit to people in their own local, um, local geography when Apple or Google knows a, a thousand or a hundred thousand times more about those consumers than, um, than the bank does? Well, and, and they're doing it algorithmically, which means they don't necessarily know why the decisions are being made, right? The, the nature of a black box, I mean, what, what's go, what goes on in the black box is a little bit, uh, a little bit unknown, right? Which sure. flies directly in the face of the idea of fair lending or other things, right? So, so there's some real problems with uh, the expansion of financial services from a regulatory perspective. Now, there are lots of people who think those are, those are rules we ought to, the, the, that have seen their better day. They're not care. They're not the regulators today. So that those those are the rules of the game as it stands. So well, and it's uh, interesting it, that the folks I think those rules have seen. You know, they they were a relic of a different type of time. I think they don't really understand the the complexities of the human actors involved in these challenges. I mean, those rules exist in order to protect people. Uh, as much as I'm, I'm actually not a huge fan of, I'm a relatively conservative libertarian kind of guy. Uh, so not necessarily a huge fan of, uh, of regulations coming in place, but the protections afforded by those things, I think are really important. Um, and yeah, they're definitely trying to solve a real problem. You know, you can argue about whether that's the right way and, and, or, or the, the extent to which that should be applied. But I don't, you know, if you deny there's a problem, I think you, you know, you're, you're kidding yourself, right? I think yeah, that's probably sure. a safe way of saying that. And, and if you're modeling your, if you're using artificial intelligence to model what's happened uh, already within your lending profile, and your lending profile was, let's say, I don't know, racist already, then now you've just automated continue to be racism, so. and and <laughs> it will be right. self-feeding and get worse. I think it was that's Microsoft right. who put out some sort of a help chat system a couple of years ago. 
and it was geared towards talking to teenagers. And they just wanted to see how the AI would respond to teenagers. And of course, what do teenagers do? They start talking about horrible topics, and immediately the AI was probably uh, the worst worst actor on the planet. Picking up on it. Yeah, they're they're yeah. becoming one of the crowd. So, that's right. Um, you know, they're so good that it was bad. And that's, that's right. Sense, yeah, right. That's a great way of putting it. We'll sort of fold back into that in a second because I do want to get to, I want to talk a little bit about blockchain um, as it relates to uh, you know, some of the things that are going on around sure. innovation, um, specifically to risk management. But before we do that, you know, I, I can't can't avoid talking about the topic. You know, in your mind and kind of what, what in terms of what you guys see, you know, how big is the people problem when it comes to risk management, and where how does the technology side of that play in? Is it even worse when it comes to technology risk management? Yeah. So I. I think the people problem is twofold. Obviously, there are people who are nefarious out there that are going to do bad things, right? So, let's put that people problem aside. Yeah, put because, the black hats to the side. Let's talk yeah. about the let's talk about white hats, either internal or external, right? Current customers or current employees of, of yeah. So, of the I, company. I, th- I think the um, the biggest risk problem you have with the people in an organization is actually complacency. Uh, so I don't I don't think it's that people don't want to do the right thing. I think number one, they don't necessarily know what the right thing is, but two. They got their day jobs. So again, you're in a you're in a bank, you're a financial services organization. Your job is, while there are some people who specialize in risk and compliance, for the vast majority of the first line of defense, those people who are doing the work, that's not their job. That's do transactions, the, make right, loans, do transactions, you know, make loans, etc. Sell products, do marketing, whatever it might be, right? That's that's right. And the pressure on them is not around the compliance side. That's a ding. It's how many sales did you make today? How many transactions did you close today? That's the pressure. So I think that they get complacent around that. And so what I believe the technology needs to do is to be front and center to help them in line do the things that they need to do so that they can become more compliant. So as an example, um, we recently bought a, a company that builds an intranet, which may sound like it doesn't make that much sense for us to, as a risk and compliance company to buy an intranet, um, but I, I felt like it made a ton of sense from the perspective of connecting that first line of defense to your compliance and regulatory activities. So now we can use that intranet to educate people, to let them submit complaints, to help them with their day-to-day work, help them find policies, see where they're sticking on those policies, et cetera, so that we can then push that back up to the second line of defense who can then help those people on the first line do more work. So using technology to try to gather information and disseminate information in a way that is regulatory and compliance focused. Um, so yeah, that to me, Brian, honestly, it's it's the complacency side of thing more than anything. I think the technology needs to be enablers around that, and it needs to happen in the background in a way that's uh, sort of ubiquitous uh, and and doesn't uh, get in your face. And one of the things we talk about on Cut the Shit a lot is the idea, you know, this idea of technology is magic, and that that while. Technology is magical or can be magical in a lot of ways when it's applied. I mean, there's pretty incredible stuff that that we can do with technology. And again, I'm I'm, I'm speaking, you know, at at a high level, right? Whether that's software or or enabled, you know, Internet of Things or or the Internet or whatever. you know, this sort of idea of technology is magic really is a cultural thing now. It's, It's embedded in our culture, right, in terms of the developed world. I feel like that works against us in this case because I think most people and I think the industry is guilty of overselling the technology is magic, particularly when it comes to this kind of thing that, oh, don't worry about it. We've got all this cool stuff on your computer. It'll protect you. Don't don't sweat it. All you got to do is buy X, right? And no worries, right? The bad guys can't get to you. And and that may not be, I, I'm just interested to know how you guys, I mean, do you feel a little bit like Cassandra in, in, in terms of partnering with your con- compliance officers and saying, hey guys, these things are real? Um, or I mean, is it complacency from that perspective or just I'm so damn busy I really don't have time to try to figure this other stuff out. Or is it a little bit of both? I think it's it's a little bit of both. So, you know, I guess it was Dick Cheney back in the back in the day who said there's a known knowns, the unknown. Right before knowns. he said, hey, get out of the way before right. I shoot. Exactly. Okay. And then the unknown <laughs> unknowns. Right. And so I think, you know, I've, I had this conversation with our CEO the other day. I said, you know, we're really good at helping people understand um, the known knowns. Um, but what what are we doing to help them understand the unknown unknowns, right? The things that they don't know, they don't know. Because to me, those are the ones that are going to bite them in the ass. And uh, his response was, yeah, there's a ton of stuff that we can do around that, but our customers aren't even focused on that. All they care about is meeting the regulatory obligations because they think that's good enough. And I'm you know, I don't, as a as a um, as a consumer, think that meeting the regulatory obligations are good enough because I don't necessarily trust the government to have established all of those things. And as we talked about before, 
they can't possibly know the the, the challenges that are going to be arising from a big tech perspective and, and who can do what as a result. Yeah, I mean, the regulations, you know, we, one of the questions I had that I'm not even going to bother asking because it's so obvious, right, is do regulators really understand technology risk? And I think that's a, probably a rhetorical question, right? It's not fair to expect them to be able to understand emerging uh, threats in the technology universe. And regulation is always going to lag innovation, right? It's the nature of that process. And I yeah, imagine you I mean, see that firsthand. I do, but I give good, you know, I give props to the to the regulators for trying to understand emerging technology risks. I think they actually do a pretty good job of it. But you got to think about what is the, what's the auditor's role from a regulatory perspective? It's to make sure that you meet the requirements of the regulation. And who writes the laws? It's not the regulators that write the laws. They're, it's, it's the it's the you know it's the legislators that are writing the laws and then you've got regulators that interpret those laws to create rules around them to go do things so unless a, somebody comes in and says we're going to change the way you think about technology and we're going to by fiat tell you how it must be um, I don't see how you would ever have a regulator be able to tell you what you can do and can't do from a technology perspective or give you cookie cutter things that you should be considering yeah I mean Just, you've got standard like safe standards like safety and soundness or things sure. like that but but that can be interpreted I mean to your point right I mean what does safety and soundness really mean, right? That, that, that Those are things about which reasonable people can disagree, and they do, right? And, and even in a regulatory regime, you can have differences across, you know, uh, you know, the Fed in the Northeast may be different than the Fed in the Southwest, you know, down at the individual regulator level. I, I've seen that. I saw that in my career uh, on multiple occasions, right? So it, you know, there's still humans playing in this game. That, that's right. Uh, and it makes it real interesting from that standpoint. Uh, absolutely. So they can't keep up, and it's not their fault, Um so that's, that to me is the set of unknown unknowns, and it's, it's whether or not financial institutions need to care about them. And I think at the end of the day, they do. Uh, and I think that if they're taking a true risk management approach, then the, what they're trying to do is mitigate all those threats. And it's not just the threat of fine. It's the existential threats that occur if Correct. you don't do these things. Yeah, what about my investors? Forget about the regulators for a second, right? What about my customers? Right? Well, right. I mean, and I, you know, I, I espouse this all the time to, to my people because we obviously we run a software as a service organization. So I've got a hosting operation that, that exists around that. And I basically I tell them all the time, I'm like, you guys need to understand if we get breached, and I'm sure we will one day, if that data isn't properly handled and encrypted, et cetera, and somebody can actually do something with this, you might as well just not come to work the next day because we service banks. And guess what? They're not going to keep us as a customer. So we spend not going to get a lot of second chances with that. No, we spend a lot of time and money on that uh, to ensure that, you know, we're doing the best that's possible. So before we transition, I do want to get to a little bit about blockchain, not a lot, but a little bit, Um, you know, you mentioned AI and, and, and when I think about your platform as, as, as much surface area as it has and sort of the wide ranging um, areas that you cover from a risk management standpoint. And, and, you know, you don't have to reveal secrets, but in terms of R&D or looking at leveraging AI, what are you guys, how are you guys thinking about that as it relates to what the platform might be able to do for a customer? So there's a, there's an infinite number of possibilities around that. So I think the, without revealing too much of what we're trying to do, I would say we're trying to glean insights from the information that's coming into our systems and help you understand the interconnections of things that you might not have have understood before. So I have this vision uh, in my mind of you remember Clippy uh, from Microsoft Office days? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, Clippy! Who doesn't yeah. remember Clippy? Well, if you're, if well, you're young, you may uh, not there's a lot of young Clippy. people who don't. Yeah, if you showed it to them, they would think that was stupid and. You know, they they might not be 100% wrong. Well, yeah. what you got to understand is all the um, the chat systems that pop up on every single website you use nowadays that ask you if you want help. That's Clippy. Came from Clippy. Oh, that's I know. Right. Yeah, it was the it was the character that was the problem, not the concept. Well, I liked I liked the wizard dog better than Clippy. But regardless, I have this vision of Clippy popping up uh, in our software, no matter where you're at, and saying, "Hey." saw you were doing this activity, have you considered this other thing that might be related to it? And I think the only way that's going to come is through uh, some sort of uh, AI that, that's building that out. Um, and that's that's you know near and dear to my heart just based on a lot of the background that I've got. So the more information that we can get into our systems and the more data that we can infer based on that, the better we can do. And one of the things that we're able to do because we've got thousands of financial institutions that use our system is we can anonymize that data and then we can actually go make inferences across the whole ecosystem as opposed to just yours. So most of these smaller institutions don't have enough data to actually make machine learning viable for them. But when right. you aggregate it across the whole, uh, you actually can do some interesting things with it. So we're, we're experimenting with some things around that, uh, with a lot of things around data ingestion. Um, and then, you know, I know you're going to you're gonna jump into blockchain in a minute. I think uh, one of the things that we keep thinking about, and again, blockchain is not AI, but people like to think no. of them in kind of the no, same 
right. same technology vein. Um, but one of the things we're thinking about is data governance as it relates to um, the ability to say that you know, I, I perform an audit, right? And when I perform an audit, I perform an audit based on a set of data. Well, how do I know that data hasn't changed since you did the audit, right? And blockchain and technologies like that can help us do uh, some of that. All right. Well, you're stealing my thunder, but this does feel like a good time to to pivot into this new little segment we've got called Hot Topic, uh, not to be confused with the super cool store that used to be in the mall back in the days. Um, probably most young people don't even know what that is. Or but Hot Pockets, which are delicious. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they are. Um, we want to take a quick look at you know an emerging technology trend. Uh, it's relevant to a discussion we're having. So for today, let's talk about blockchain. You sure. mentioned a little bit or you kind of got into it on your side. Um, Regardless of your stance, you know, on crypto as a, you know, an asset class or store of value or whatever, uh, I think everyone agrees that this idea of distributed ledgers and smart contracts are really going to have a big impact on businesses, large and small. You started talking about that a little bit on your side, but maybe expound, even go beyond your own realm and think and describe to me a little bit, maybe how you see that playing out in financial services writ large. I wish I knew the answer to that question. I also wish I had bought uh, Dogecoin when it was, you know, at a one thousandths of a penny. Um, I would have sold it all by now, but still, wish I'd wish I'd bought it. Um, I God, Brian, I I don't know that I know the answer to that question. So, smart contracts is a great example of some of a of a solution waiting for a problem to happen. So, yeah, great. We're able to track that these diamonds that came from the Congo are the real diamonds that they said they were. But it doesn't stop the fact that you know. 500 people died in the mining of those diamonds, and uh, right? I mean, it's, right. It's, you're still going to have conflict diamonds as a result of it. Um, you know, contracts and contract disputes have existed forever. This concept of automating around that, I, I haven't found the actual um, real use case that's going to drive that yet. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to, to see when that happens. I mean, have you, have you seen things where you're like, oh, yeah, that's the killer use case? No, I, you know, my bugaboo or my, I guess my, the thing that bothers me the most is buying title insurance when mm -hmm. I bought a house. It seems like the biggest waste of money ever. It does. I mean, are you telling me that the houses that I've bought that have been sold 40 times or 30 times don't have clean titles and yet I have to buy insurance on that thing? And I keep thinking that seems to be like a place where we could do it. We could apply a smart ledger and deal with that. But I guess that means retroactively gathering all that data and getting it into the ledger, which I'm sure is the problem. So, Well, you could do it going forward, though. I mean, I'm refinancing my house as we speak, uh, and I did it two and a half years ago as well. So uh, I know my title was clean then, and I owned the house uh, then. And you I still had to it. buy insurance, though, because the bank insurance. required you to. That's right. Uh, so honestly, that's probably less of a smart contract thing and more of a racket that needs to get uh, eliminated <laughs> well, from a regulatory perspective than anything. Yeah, but, I guess I wasn't counting I on the uh, title loud, insurance companies to up. do it. I was counting on somebody to come in from the outside and disintermediate those guys. Yeah, I'm surprised. You know? um, I actually am surprised that some fintech hasn't done it yet. Uh, it yeah, probably I mean, 10 bucks a month, you know, for, for the ability to have access to that ledger. You yes. know, and it transfers from property owner to property owner, you know, it would be an annuity and way cheaper than title insurance. Anyway, that's, that, sign, yeah, that, you know that's, what, S sign me up all day, every day, or just make it part of my checking account so that when I buy, when I get my checking account from the fintech in the future, that service is provided as part of it. There you go. Yeah. So I think smart contract is an interesting one. I think the, the concept of data protection and just ensuring that, um, things haven't changed in the process is, is an interesting one, but Honestly, I don't. You know, it, distributed ledger versus blockchain is an interesting one there because really, do I need anything more than just the hash? At that point, yeah, I guess you know it does get interesting, right? And what is where, where? How far do you go with it, and how? What are its applications, right? It's it's a super interesting technology that I think has a ton of applications. That to your point, we're ten years into this thing, right? We're just getting started, so I'm counting on that being something that has a long life. I don't know about Dogecoin, um, but I do know about blockchain, right? In terms of I'm willing to, I'm willing to, I'm willing to say for I, sure. I think it'll have a long, out. a long life as well. I think this is a, a lot of screwdrivers being thrown at nails kind of conversation as well, though. I, I do think people are trying to, um, you know, instead of, there's a great technology that's super, super brilliant, uh, the way that it was come up with. Now let's go find problems to solve with it. I, I think is the, the harder part as opposed to here's a problem that I need to go solve kind of. Yeah, deal. you're probably, you're right. You're right. Uh, let's transition to a couple a couple of wrap-up questions on sort of the relationship between the CTO role and the CIO. I just want okay. to talk a little bit about that. And then we'll we'll close with a little lightning round question session. That'll be for fun. And then All we'll right. let you get back to work. Sounds good. 
All right. So, you know, from a CTO perspective, I mean, where do you see the overlap between kind of your job and sort of the CIO or the IT department's job? Where do those overlap from your perspective? Um, I actually think it's pretty clear. So um, I think the CIO is the inwardly facing component of an organization as it relates to technology and the CTO is the externally facing focus of it. So you know, as I'm the I am the chief technology officer of our organization. I actually the CIO, if we had one, would right now would end up reporting to me simply because of just the way we do our governance. But my chief focus is focus on our customers and the needs of the customers and how we can most effectively service those customers. And I think the CIO is focused on the business and asking the questions, what does the business need in order for it to do what it's doing? So it's this sort of internal versus external focus. And I think they're, they're fundamentally different. The other way that I would look at it is that CTOs are outcome oriented. So I've got an outcome that I'm trying to achieve, and I think CIOs are output-oriented, which is I've got a project that I need to execute against, and how can I best uh, effectively execute against that project. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I just think they have different focuses. The, they, we all may use computers. We all may need to understand technology, but um, one is creating brand new things that have never existed potentially for an organization. I think the other one is taking things that have been created and integrating them most effectively within the organization. So I'll push back a little bit on that just from my perspective. Strategically speaking, you know, the, the IT side of the house can is obviously taking care of internal stuff, but also, you know, can really be seen as enabler of that For external sure. capability. And the ownership of that enabling uh, stuff, infrastructure, cloud services, whatever it might be, I think I, I know enough about your shop to know that that falls in your purview, but that's not the case at a lot of places. So in many, in many ways, the CTO could be a customer of the CIO in terms of being able to deliver on those uh, on those outcome oriented um, results you were talking about. So you know, from that as a perspective, how important is that relationship between between those uh, between those groups or those individuals? Oh, I think it's critical, and I don't know that they have to be you know adversarial is probably not the right word. You know, sometimes I think that does happen though when you've got the the CIO and the CTO both reporting to the CEO, for example. Um, Typically not the, the, the model you might have a CIO that reports into the CFO and then the CTO reporting into either product or into the, uh, into the CEO directly. I think they've got to work hand in hand with each other, but I do think their, fo their focuses are different. So one is, like, like you said, the CIO I do, I do think plays a role of a strategic enabler for the entire organization. So whether that's how do we, um, how do we focus on, on driving margins up organizationally by applying uh, technology to the organization to enable people to do things differently. I think that is the type of question the CIO would answer, whereas I think the CTO should be answering questions of how do we drive new sales and new revenues up by creating new products that can be uh, sold and leveraged to our customers. So not every organization needs a CTO. Right. I mean, your right. software, we're talking about specific, you know, sure. some, some specific types of organizations for sure. Yeah. So not, not everyone needs a CTO, but I would say most organizations that have some technology either need a CIO or some sort of outsourced uh, CIO model where they can, you know, get a fractional CIO from another company or, or something along those lines. And I think that is a, that's an emerging thing that needs to, to be, to be heavily looked at, um, you know, whether it's your, your CSP that's doing those types of things for you or, or somebody else. I think the, the CIO probably lends itself more to that type of role uh, than the CTO would. And, and that leads into the question, I mean, from your perspective, where does IT, when done right, really help you with your development efforts? Um, <clears throat> when does IT, when really done right, help with my development efforts? When I don't know they exist, right? When it's like turning on the faucet and water just comes out. I think that's the, the challenge is that, and this is where IT organizations get a bad rap sometimes, is that they're too much in the process. There are too many layers that they put in place in order to to hamper us from doing things, uh, which I don't have that problem because uh, we've, we've largely solved most of those things. Our, our, uh, our IT organization is heavily embedded with our product organization to ensure that we, we know what's coming um, earlier on in the process. But that, that would be to me is if you, can, if you can make it like a utility, then IT is extraordinarily enabling. So they're like the offensive linemen of the business world, right? You never notice them unless they get a penalty. That's right. Yeah, that's a, great, that that's a great way to, to, to put it. That you either, unless they get a penalty or unless they consistently collapse in the pocket. <laughs> exactly. Or, the, or they have like really interesting tattoos or the helmet flies off or something like that. It's usually the hair. Or they're like that guy it's who plays hair. for the Chiefs who's, um, who's from Montreal 
and he's a doctor. He goes and like works in the ER in the off season. Uh, his name is Laurent Duvernay, Duvernay Tardif. Look him up. He's like maybe the most interesting. You know, I'm, with apologies to the Dosecchi's guy, he's the most most interesting man in the world. So that's a that's a great story. There are some super super smart football players out there too. I've uh, been enjoying watching Gronk on his TV ads. I would not say he falls. <laughs> yeah, he's trying. I think he wants to be. He's like a, he's like Peyton Manning, but you know, like a little bit different character. <laughs> I think the two of them need to be in a a commercial together. It'll happen. It'll happen. It's coming. I feel it. Yeah. So, you know, I know you guys are, you guys have pretty much cloud focused in terms of your development operation. So, you know, having made that move or really having started there as a native, I'm not sure which for in contracts, it doesn't really matter. You're there now. Sure. Um, Has that really freed up a lot of time for you that used to be spent on infrastructure and hardware and software and stuff? Uh, Or are you now spending that same time? Is that time just getting sucked up with DevOps and, uh, you know, variable resource usage and that kind of thing? How's that worked out for you guys in terms of your profile? I would say that it has freed up time and it has freed up... um things for us to focus on. So I, it's hard to explain it in contracts. So when I first started it in contracts, we um, we did have a data center and we managed our own environment and I moved it almost immediately to the cloud because it, I just didn't see the value in it for us to do that. And I, I also wanted my customers to realize that they're outsourcing their critical risk infrastructure to us. It's okay for us to outsource our critical infrastructure to well-managed organizations like Amazon and uh, Microsoft. So, do you I, still I, get pushback on that? Is that is that not much anymore? Is that ever an issue? Not not really. It was a, it was an issue in 2017 and 2018, but not much. And actually, one of the acquisitions we did uh, at the I guess it was literally December 31st of 2020. So I I consider it a 2021 acquisition. Um, was a company that did not have any outsourced stuff. Everything was in-house and all installs on customer sites. And so we are trying to figure out how to migrate that to the, to the internet, right. which, is, which will be a multi-year effort. But one of the efforts we undertook earlier this year was to survey our customers, thinking you know maybe 30 or 40% of them would be ready to move. 90% of them asked us to have a web-based product. They don't want it in any, in-house anymore. And I think a massive reason for that is the, the challenges of COVID. So these guys have software that's installed on a PC how do you get to it when you're working remotely, right? So now their IT organizations understand they've got hundreds of holes poked through their infrastructure in order to be able to get to that. They really don't want that anymore. So they, they all want to go to the cloud. It just makes sense. Gotcha. So last question before we get to the, the wrap up, the fun stuff. So, um, and this is kind of a generic question, but, you know, just sort of expound a little bit from your perspective. You talked some about it already, but, you know, as a kind of a wrap up, you know, in your mind, what is the sort of the ideal technology manager or CIO, even a line technology person need to understand, or what would you want them to understand about the development function to help you guys do a better job and to help them do a better job supporting you? That's a great question. Um, I think they need to understand that we don't know what we want to do until we do it. So I know that's like, I just the same question of, well, why can't you just tell me when it's going to be done, right? That's a classic software development question. And the, and the reason is, it's, it's like this. Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a house, of course, with without a blueprint. But while you're building that house, go ahead and create the blueprint. Tell me how much it's going to cost. And then when you're halfway through it, I want you to change the foundation of that house from being a... Um, you know, a slab to being a basement. And then in the middle of that, move it to the ocean and then have it float, right? I mean, there's just, you know, it gets ludicrous as you go along. But the, um, oh, and by the way, we're going to invent a brand new technology in the middle of it that I'm going to want you to apply. So I know you right. used wood for all of the frame and and everything else that you did, but this, this new uh, aluminum-based stuff is much lighter, um, so please use it instead. Uh, so you got to rip everything out. That's what happens to us from software development projects perspective. And it's um, it's even worse because people, you know, they come to you with an idea. So I got to take the idea from Brian's head and translate it into software. Um, and with, Brian probably does, he really doesn't know what he wants, to be that, honest. That's right. And you yeah. don't know what you want until I tell you what's possible. So we're in this middle of this, this constant evolution of the thing until we build it. So now my IT organization wants me to give them two months worth of lead time to let them know when I need a new IP address shit up. And that's fascinating because our agile cycles have us delivering software every six weeks uh, into production. And honestly, we deliver multiple times per day. So, right. and, and one of the features we delivered today, we conceived of three days ago and built it, tested it, and are ready to deploy it. And it needs a new IP address. So now you're telling me that you want me to wait two months before you're going to be ready to give me that IP address in production. And here's the kicker. 
the software that I have that I need to deploy, it's value. And it's value sitting on a shelf. It's inventory. It's like having cars sitting on a lot right. that people can look at, but they can't drive. doesn't really do me much good as an organization. So I think that's the thing I need the, the infrastructure folks to really understand is as much as I want to tell you everything I'm going to be doing this year, it's impossible. And I know that's how you guys work. Um, but that's just not the way that the rest of the world works, and it's, we just can't do it. So uh, that, I think, would be it, is, is provide flexible services that make it easier for us to do the things we need to do. To, and to that point, you know, my infrastructure team has started to get that message, so I'll use the IP address one as for DNS entry one as an example. Um, you know, we now have scripts to generate DNS entries, and we have designated people in our organization, in the product organization, that can run them so that it doesn't always have to be the IT organization doing it. Right, so they let you guys do it, right? They, they enable the way it. for you to do it. Yeah. Exactly. So they, they see the problems, and they self-service us around them, and I think that's a real important thing to do from a partnering perspective. I think that's a good one. It's a good place to stop uh, with the sort of the formal stuff. So um, we always like to wrap up with a little right lightning round of, of questions. I started this last time and it, and it seemed kind of fun. So we're going to stick with it. So, so always um, this is the second second time. So always, yeah. always on the second time. Got it. I, I got it. Hey, we got it. You know, a trend is two, right? That's right. Yeah. It's a line. There you go. Two, two data points. So um, we're going to structure this one a little different. We're going to do this one like a little bit of game of would you rather. All so. Right. Uh, I'll ask you, would you rather, and you tell me uh, which option you'd go with, and maybe give me a little why. Okay. So, would you rather watch Mr. Robot or Ted Lasso? Huh, I think Ted Lasso uh, because I haven't watched it yet, and I have watched Mr. Robot, so I will go with Ted Lasso. Okay, so you cheated on the first one. Okay, so that, that was a weaseled out of the first one already. Okay, we'll see where we go from here. Would you rather sell insurance for a living or sell cars for a living? I would rather sell insurance for a living because it's a dividend that keeps on paying. And once you once you get them in there, uh, they're, they're never going to walk away. Hotel California. I like it. All right. Would you rather be Superman or Batman? Ooh, that's a tough one. Superman or Batman? I mean, they, they both... Well, they're different, I, they're right? Very, Superman's they're a real different. superhero. Batman's just He's just clever. made up. Yeah, no, no. And, and maybe not even that clever. I'm going to go with Superman. Uh, and I think it's... Uh, Largely because, I mean, he has every possible superpower you could ever want. There's really nothing he can't do. He's wouldn't that be boring? I mean, um, what, what are you going to do? What, I mean, what, 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 are, what mountains to climb? I don't know. I mean, you get to serve your, people. Your choice. Your yeah, choice. I mean, you get, you know. So you're asking the question of what's the real risk, right? Superman has no risk of failure. That's, I guess, is the, the challenge. I guess there's kryptonite. There's kryptonite. There is one thing. There is one thing. So all he has to yeah. do is stay away. Stay with a yellow sun and get away from uh, kryptonite, and he should be fine. There's got to be an anti-kryptonite weapon out there anyway. I don't know why he hasn't bothered to team up with Batman to invent it. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, would you rather water ski or drive the boat and pull someone water skiing? I would much rather drive the boat pulling somebody water skiing. I have face-planted hardcore water skiing, and I don't need to do that again at my age, Brian. <laughs> All right, last one. Would you rather get tackled by J.J. Watt or punched by Floyd Mayweather? Oh, God. Uh, I think tackled by J.J. Watt. Honestly, am I wearing pads, or is this just like an out-of-the-blue? He just Yeah, it's like a, yeah, you'd have to be wearing pads. It's not, it's not rugby. It's not fair. So. I'd rather be tackled by J.J. Watt. Plus, I think I could juke him. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, with that, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up and let Bill off the hook. Um, but, Bill, I'll give you the last word. Last one. Yeah, if there's one thing you'd like the audience to take away from today's conversation, what would it be? And it can't be that risk management is cooler than IT because we both know that that ain't true. Yeah, that's yeah, a tough one. Um, I think the thing that I would want people to understand, especially those of you who are like budding, trying to get into um, IT or software development or whatever it is. First of all, there's two things. Number one, IT and software development are not the same thing. So if you are, that is true. If you are a business person and you keep referring to your software development organization and product team as your IT organization, you are insulting them. Stop. So, so stop doing that. Well, that's uh, a, that's a little hurtful. I don't know about saying that you're insulting them, but. You're just missing. You're, you're swinging and missing. Yeah, I mean, sure. It's, it's like me telling the marketing department that they're the advertising department, right? So true, that's, true. that's one. And the other one would be that there is more to uh, writing code and writing software than actually just putting lines of code into, uh, into a computer. It requires human skills. And so I really would encourage anybody who's considering this stuff. You know, Brian, you talked a little bit about introversion earlier in the conversation. 
go learn about how to talk to people, how to understand vulnerability, how to gain trust and build trust, etc. Because ultimately, those software professionals, those product professionals, those IT people uh, who can do that are going to be um, they're going to be the best in, in the world. So uh, I would definitely tell you to go get yourself a psychology degree and understand people a little better. I got it. On that, we will we will end there. Bill, really appreciate the time. Thanks for thanks for doing this for us on behalf of everyone at Plow. Uh, we really appreciate it. Hey, Brian, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, take care. Take care. Cut the Shit is brought to you by Plow Networks and is produced by Talia Domenico and Emily Starnes. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, we'd be most grateful if you would share it with others who you think might be interested in hearing a somewhat irreverent take on the arcane world of IT. If you aren't enjoying it, well, why are you listening? You can find links to this podcast on our website at plow.net, on our YouTube and Instagram feeds, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, LinkedIn, and probably a bunch of other places too. Or as my kids like to say, just Google that shit. You'll find it for sure. Take care and have a great day. 